Hello, everybody, and welcome back for another episode of Mangum Reads. Uh, other than a special episode we held a couple weeks ago, I believe we've been gone for a rather long time. Yeah, it's um, been about two months, so you could say that it's been a long time. And that's mostly on me. I mean, we had fun recording our special episode, but we have been so far away from Bob that I basically had to reread it in terms of getting back up to speed to hold a podcast on it. Yeah, I'm I'm looking back and realizing that maybe I should have done a reread. You know, I was looking at some of my notes, and and they're a lot sparser than I might have taken um, had I known that it would be a, a larger gap, shall we say, between the time that I read it and recording the rest of the episodes. Um, but there are like two or three other books that I've read since then, so like I can talk about those while you know you kind of recap where we were, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those things where those kind of memory trigger notes, the ones that just have a little few keywords and buzz phrases, they only really work for a couple weeks. Otherwise, the actual details and minutiae just start to fade into the ether. Yeah, I, I, you know, I have some triggers for, for certain episodes, and um, I think one of them that, that we actually covered beforehand, so, you know, our listeners will have listened a little bit, is Bill and Garfield develop FTL communications. And that's it for, for the entire chapter. <laughs> and, you know, admittedly, that is the key thing to remember and one of the f- driving bits of the plot that they're actually able to establish the Bob mood from thereafter. So, you know, that works. That's enough of a tidbit to work on. Yeah, but but now it's just like I have to cogitate for a little while. And it's like, all right, so the FDL communications and then, oh, yeah, and then Bill popping into other people's VR and, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, it was a whole, th- whole OK, yes, I remember. OK, I can talk about it now. Yeah, essentially, at this point, we're going to give you kind of the Cliff Notes version of the book in case your teacher's going to quiz you on it later. In terms of the actual detail to write an essay, go read it yourself. Yeah, or listen to it as as uh, Spencer's finally taking the plunge and actually uh, listening to what is supposed to be one of the best audiobooks of 2018, uh, last year now. And I must give you credit for this. I have a certain suspicion for audiobooks just because I'm so used to reading it myself and you know, hearing my own voice in my head with respect to it. This was a remarkable audiobook. He has more effectively embodied the character than anything I could have put together. Yeah, it, it, it's very impressive. He does a really, really good job of separating out the quote-unquote different Bobs and and really making um, the characters come to life. And and because I read it afterwards, I ha- already had that impression. And so I think that, Spencer, you're starting to get that now of, you know, the depth of the book that the audible uh narrator actually gives it and i think you told me before this is the kind of audiobook of where it was planned from the very beginning in some ways this is almost as much intended to be an audiobook as it was a written book which is rather rare among the audiobook community yeah um i think that amazon is getting a little bit more into the content production space um and actually the next book that this um that dennis taylor put out and i'm saying book but it's i believe just an audiobook is more like a Hmm. radio novella production and so it it sort of takes what's gone into the the work of these books and taking it to the next level which i kind of find it really funny that you know and 60 years we've essentially gone full circle where you know they're they're putting out radio novellas essentially you know radio stories and you know doing the whole fully work and everything else that goes along with making these stories come to life um but 
in a very a much more portable uh, manner. So you know everybody's not crowding around their their own radio. You, you you know you take it in a on your phone and you go wherever with it. I, it worked well for Orson Welles eighty years ago. It can work well today. There is inherent merit in this format. And for our listeners who are interested in trying out an audiobook for the first time or not regularly tried them out, this is a great way to start. This is a wonderfully done piece. It, as BJ says, it reads much more like a rate. It reads. If you listen, <laughs> it comes across as much more like a radio drama than anything else and does it very well for it. In terms of where we are with the plot, BJ, from your illustrious notes, do you have a vague memory of where we last left off in terms of going through our own personal responses to this story? Um, I do. Um, and, you know, other people will probably be listening to this and, and can put these episodes together. But essentially, for a very quick recap, um, our main character um, is killed in the early 21st century uh, and is frozen, uh, put into cryogenic storage, and is taken out at a time when the U.S. government has basically become a religious authoritarian government. Um, mm-hmm. and is put into a um, basically AI matrix. So he's the AI, he's the you know the computer in a box or whatever. And after a series of um, attacks is very quickly put into a space probe um, that is then very quickly launched out into space and he sort of goes out and exploring and is intent on exploring the universe and sending information back to Earth. Um, And one of the directives of his as a space probe is to make copies of himself so he can sort of um, undergo multiplicative expansion and sort of explore the universe that way rather than as a solo probe. Um, He does this at the the first uh, stop that he has, Uh, builds a couple of copies of himself. One of them stays Bill um, to sort of develop tech because of an issue with his engines. Uh, Another one of his copies, Riker, goes back to Earth to sort of see what was going on because there was uh, intraplanetary war going on um, sort of as they left. And after Bob sort of sees that a couple of his copies seem to be getting everything done fairly well, he moves off to um, explore uh, Delta Eridani. Um, and then there are a handful of more of his copies that have sort of gone off in very different directions to wander out and explore the universe. And um, then there are two copies, Riker and Homer, that basically went back to Earth to sort of see what was going on in this uh, intraplanetary war. And um, basically they come back and find that the... It's not quite a nuclear winter, but there's definitely been some issues going on. um, And the Earth is sort of at the end of its survival time. And so basically they say, oh crap, now we basically need to save Earth um, after finding some pockets of humanity. And I believe we left off um, when they're trying to contact what's left of humanity and figure out what to do with them. Um, And also on Bob's side, he just made contact with the Deltans. Um, He's a Delta Eridani with the 
uh, bat pigs that we sort of describe. Um, and I just sort of have this sense of essentially a, uh, if you took a Pegasus, but instead of, you know, a horse body, you have a pig body. And instead of, uh, sort of beautiful Eagle wings, you have bat wings, but they're hilariously too small, which I'm sure makes absolutely no sense. Like if they're actually sort of winged creatures vaguely, then they'd be a little bit larger, but that's sort of my, like, you know, it's just, it's the uh, sort of jokingly if pigs could fly and somehow these hilariously small, like, you know, six inch square wings are just popping out of uh, um, a, a pig, almost like um, Buffalo Wild Wings. They have like a hor- uh, cow, I'm sorry, with like these little wings that are sort of on its back. That's essentially like the scale that I imagined for, for these bat pigs. That's the image in your head right there. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. This book is really built around the concept of, of um, kind of panspermia, that DNA originated in space, and so that well, the main alien race he meets is definitely humanoid. However, he goes out of his way to make the humanoid race as far away from rubber forehead aliens like from Star Trek as possible. <laughs> These are distinctly ugly, non-human looking, even if they are vaguely humanoid structured creatures. Well, when you say humanoid structure, I feel like their social structure is humanoid, but like the actual um, physical structure is very much not. Like, yes, you know, they're still essentially protein and DNA based, but they're mm-hmm. not bipedal. They, they don't. Well, they're, they're roughly bipedal, I think. Uh, I think that the two months has uh, done some things to your memory. <laughs> well, I mean, they use hand tools, they use hand weapons. Uh, they throw spears, throwing axes. They clearly have use of their hands. Yes. I, I guess I sort of more imagine it. I, I think they have six limbs. You may be right about that, actually. Um, so while they do have use of their front two appendages, I guess that's more of what I... I, I guess I imagined more of a centaur-like thing that didn't have the human head torso it was just sort of like a a a pig giraffe with little wings and you have, weird arms. you've had fun with this mental image <laughs> well i think the two main i'd say arguably the two main overarching plots for most of the book are riker's experiences in terms of trying to keep humanity alive once he clears away the brazilian probes that are actively trying to bring about the even further apocalypse on earth and then meanwhile bob prime essentially conducting his own form of first contact and willful violation of every aspect of the Star Trek Prime Directive, which he name drops and then actively works to ignore. Yeah, I I do appreciate, as I'm sure many people that that will read this, really appreciate the nerdy references and that he will name drop the appropriate things that would come up if he didn't name drop them. Um, (laughs) It's sort of like any time a something comes up with robots or androids or whatever, Asimov's three laws get brought up because it is so part of our culture. And to not do that, there's a vacuum there. And so because he's meeting a new species and he does mention the prime directive, you don't have that vacuum. He acknowledges that, you know, here's the trope that we're all thinking of, but this is intelligent life. Like, how can I not actually go and meet them and you know yeah we say we shouldn't interfere but 
at our core, we're inquisitive. And mm-hmm. I mean, and uh, for me personally, you know, as, as a scientist, like you can only do so much as a, an observer until you start perturbing the system or, you know, really getting in deep with, you know, the thing that you're studying. And so I think he very quickly realizes that his orbital surveys are about as far as the prime directive would really allow him to do, but mm-hmm. his subject of interest is, well, way more interesting than an orb- uh, than the information that he will get from an orbital survey will satisfy. And it's something we struggle with even in our own society, if we're naturalists continually debate whether they should intervene when in terms of their observing various animals in the wild. But as you said, this is a different kind of circumstance than that. This is a truly sentient species. This is a, from his perspective, possibly sole other thing compared to, uh, similar to us in the entire universe, at least that he knows about so far. And when he arrives on planet, it's very clear that this species is really on its way out. That as far as he can tell, I think he said at one point, like the entire population of the species that he can observe, like planet-wide, is like 500 people. Yeah, and I think... And he makes the very similar comparison to uh, Homo erectus and the Neanderthals, or maybe not Homo erectus, because I think that was a previous one, but whatever. So so basically, humanity and Neanderthals and the fairly similar uh, like body structure and fairly similar you know so at least somewhat similar intelligences maybe not quite exactly the same um and he nicknames these other mm-hmm. ones gorilloids now you know modern yeah. research has gone a little bit further and neanderthals were probably a little bit more intelligent we sort of know that we interbred so it's a little bit different and so he mm-hmm. calls them gorilloids which might be a little bit more appropriate um but this mm-hmm. is sort of very much a what he decides is a civilizational on the verge of collapse. And, and so he's worried that the only other intelligent uh, civilization that he's found so far in the universe is about to die out because of essentially either external factors or something along those lines, and he can't handle that. Right. He quickly, de- he quickly determines, which I'm not sure if this is fair or not, but he essentially decides that the gorilloids are non-sentient. And so kind of mentally assigns them less value in his mind compared to the species that he dubs the Deltons. And having determined that his surveys are both neither satisfying nor in any way helpful in terms of preserving what, from his perspective, may be the sole other sentient life form in the galaxy, he decides to actively intervene, which he does in a particularly aggressive means of these little probes and busters of his quickly become weapons of imminent ground combat. Yeah, and it's, I, I think it's kind of funny. I guess um, maybe the invading force to the lab was a little bit foreshadowing where he essentially uses something that had maybe another purpose initially um, to wreak destruction on some other group that he's determined uh, needs to Learn a lesson, shall we say. It, it's a bit of an extreme example over, say, spider bot jabs to the crotch. I mean, I think he describes these as basically being man-made meteors that he's firing at bullet-like velocities into gorilloid creatures. It doesn't leave much left behind. But 
His main motivation here seems to be a few of the Deltons that he almost immediately establishes an emotional connection with. I mean, we've had Bob, when he was alive, talk about that his relationship with his family, while close in its own way, wasn't exactly warm, and that he often, in many ways, worked to actively avoid establishing much more of a closer relationship. He moved halfway across the country. He was content when he came to visit just to go down to the den and hang out with his dad and not really interact with anybody so, uh, else. Is but that why you moved to Florida, Spencer? Hmm. That is not why I moved to Florida. I've got my own reasons. Good good reference, though. Uh, but clearly the scene in terms of the emotional pain he goes through once he finally removes his emotional filters and is able to process their loss, that the loss of his family, the loss of a connection to the world, is something that is very much an open wound to him. And in my mind, part of his immediate attachment to these Deltons is in some ways trying to reestablish a family that he otherwise might never have. I think that's part of it, um, but I also think he very much sees himself in, oh, yeah, I, I, it, it, yeah, it's almost painful, like how much he's like, this is me. Um, so there's one young Delton that he nicknames Archimedes, which I believe we mentioned in the last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically this kid, it, he, Obviously is, but I feel like some of his projecting is fairly intelligent and is going uh, out and exploring his world a little bit more and is a little bit more of an engineer scientist. And it's like, all right, what happens if I do this? What happens if I do that? Uh, But he's a little bit smaller and weaker and whatever else. And so he's getting picked on by a lot of his peers. Right. This isn't exactly a tool. The society level of these, they're a sentient race, but their relative societal and civilization level is not barely above tool using. It's not one that, say, re- rewards creativity, particularly since they are on the ropes and have possibly been on the ropes for a couple generations now in terms of just surviving day to day. A person who is weaker but curious and inquisitive doesn't really have much imminent value to a species that is actively fighting each day to live yeah. for another day. But... Bob has ideas about how we can make this kid popular in high school in a way that he probably right. never and So, I, like, I, um, I think the perfect example is they're at the stage where they're napping uh, obsidian or, or whatever. They're basically making sharp rocks but and doing stuff mm-hmm. with the sharp rocks, but they're not put, putting them on anything. So they're at the, we have sharp rocks and we can cut things with it, but how much of a good weapon that is or whatever else remains to be seen. And so they're very early uh, tool use, uh, somewhere between uh, an orangutan, a raven, and and maybe like a two-year-old. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. And it's not even implied, it's pretty much strongly stated that the level of tool use that they have presently is less than they had in the past to the degree that some of their elders, I think one of them was named, he named yes. Moses later, have have knowledge of, say, flint working, which is one of the foundational bases of Stone Age technology, which they've just utterly lost as a result of factors that Bob doesn't presently yes, really I, understand. I, I, do, I, I did like the nod of the uh, elder that, that sort of shepherds them on a long journey being named Moses. Um <laughs> I, I think yes. that the um, author may be a little bit lazy, but does it in a good way, where it's just like, well, I'm not going to come up for a name with this new character. I'm going to have my character in the world be lazy about his naming schemes, and so I can be lazy <laughs> about my naming schemes. And it's something that 
everybody can relate to. And so I'm going to pull from, you know, our society and easy names from our society and just have my main character attribute those names to the, the sentient beings. And so the, the massive dude, mm-hmm. uh, the massive Delton that, you know, can sort of whip at everybody else's butt and is just like the, is, Arnold. is Arnold. And it's like, all right, well, so everybody has like that image. And so there's a cultural touchstone of what he's trying to evoke. But I also feel like it's a super lazy way of going about it. This book runs on common tropes. It celebrates them. It symbolizes them. It clearly wants you to immediately fall into comfortable grooves and then kind of do its own thing with it. So as you said, it is a cheat, but it's a cheat with a purpose. And that's a lot of what yeah, this book is Yeah, and I think it does it very well. And I think it's a functional cheat where, yeah, he could describe this delta into a lot more detail and, you know, spend a lot of time doing, I would say, almost a Tolkien-esque delve into, you know, what the society looks like and what their interactions are mm-hmm. and, you know, how many hairs are on their flappy little ears. Or he can just, you know, <laughs> make these cultural references. And so whatever image that we build for ourselves, we understand what's going on in their society because we can relate it to ours. Right, yeah. The, the different means of doing so are either you go like Tolkien and spend 200 pages in the Shire before you start your plot so that you can symbolize your world, or you work under the assumption that your readers already have a basic understanding of certain tropes, and you just key them on that tropes, and they will fill in the blanks themselves. Two different philosophies. Now, in terms of uh, how he goes to aid the society, before he even gets involved in direct military conflict, the main thing he originally does is essentially... Use this kid's both intelligence and his own projection upon him for desire for this kid to succeed to start giving him advantages that will eventually establish him in the society. The first one being essentially just lead him to Flint. Yeah, I mean, he, he basically drops Which, a bunch of Flint um, or points him to some Flint. Um, and it's like, mm-hmm. all right, here, kid, like play with this and see what you can do with it. And... Uh, sort of immediately he starts playing around with it and then goes to Moses and is like, hey, I found some flint. Like, this is super cool. Um, and Moses is like, mm-hmm. oh, cool. Where did you find it? And they have a little stash. And it's like, all right, so this establishes their flint use and that it's somewhat, lo- you know, it's somewhat of a lost art. And then you get a little bit of a view into the society that, you know, there clearly was a lot more Flint use at some point in time that Moses was aware of. And I, I like that. It's a funny chapter in some ways because you know, Bob and I think it's Marvin, one of his clones, are just kind of observing this from on high. And their immediate reaction of, bo- of um, both Archimedes and Moses upon finding Flint is to hide it so they can monopolize it. And both Bob and Marvin turn to each other and go, did we just invent greed? I think we just invented <laughs> greed. Or, or at least cornered the market. We've given them it. a trade resource. <laughs> Yeah, which they then proceed to start making spears and hand axes and a variety of other Stone Age technology that are integral in terms of now trying to fight back against the natural world, which starts proving very useful as the Gorilloids start to engage, well, not even start, continue to engage in their almost daily attacks upon these people to drag them away and eat them. But now armed with spears, hand axes, and shortly thereafter, high-speed metal impact objects, 
the Gorilloids don't fare as well as they possibly did yeah. in the past. Um, and we should progress with this story and sort of where where this basically ends up in the book, where mm-hmm. he quickly realizes that without a source of flint, without a way of maintaining this tool use in the society that the the gorilloids, which are essentially very similar to the deltans in body shape, but are bigger, stronger, and more brutish. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I guess my sort of view of it would be the difference between a domesticated pig and a wild hog, where if they get into a fight, there's no question who's going to win, but that's not because of sort of any other thing other than brute force and what's and basically built-in weaponry. Whereas the smarts of the Deltons could have been made uh, put to good use, but they need some outlet for that. And which he provides in terms of uh, a few key both technological and practical means to support them in terms of that civilization growth, but he also starts to see the costs and risks of doing so. He provides them security, provides them food, he sees his very much avatar in these people, Archimedes, start to rise to a social and practical success in ways that he finds both heartwarming and his own wish fulfillment. Um, But at the same time, they clearly start to grow dependent on him to a certain degree, partly as a result of his own flawed or not fully planned out decision-making, of where he scouts out and finds them, as you said, the exodus kind of location of what seems to be a former base of theirs that has heavy flint supplies, uh, keyly connected to a variety of key resources. And so he just kind of says, okay, everybody's going there now, because he reveals himself in terms of supporting Archimedes and broaches the idea that they should go there to better improve their lives. Yeah, and I fully, fully, fully appreciate the, uh, the Bob... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he quickly also deduces that the Bob has now become a semi-religious figure, which he is decidedly and appropriately uncomfortable with, that they start to literally build effigies and icons to him. Um, but the Bob has spoken, and they're willing to trust the Bob, given all the advances that he's given them, only for the Bob to then promptly discover, as they've started to make their trek, that there are a variety of reasons why they left their prior location. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, Bob doesn't have ten plagues up his sleeves. He just has a handful of bu- busters and his uh, roamers. So yeah. he needs to uh, quickly move along in the Old Testament and try and figure out what he needs to do. <laughs> there are a variety of other tribes that are already in Israel. We need to decide how we actually get them out of the territory we want. Yeah, the Canaanites aren't too fond of uh, having some invader force and are kind of hungry. Yeah, we've, we've turned the Canaanites into cannibals in this particular biblical comparison, but it, he quickly deduces that he has in many ways led his people to slaughter and how has to actively try to me- find a means of preventing them from being, well, eaten by the very thing they fled in the first place. So I'm not sure how familiar with the Bible you are, but do you know that uh, when the Jews were wandering the desert, basically God has a cloud surrounding them and protecting them from basically attacks? I actually did not know that. Is uh, I I I forgotten that part entirely. Yeah. So uh, uh, essentially, there there is a uh, defense ring around the Israelites in in the form of a cloud which um, I kind of appreciate a little bit more his uh, defense ring of roamers to go going out and taking out the gorilloids. It's a, it's a little bit more exodus than I probably had 
in my mind uh, on my first or, or even second read through. It's interesting as well because they also debate the moral question of what they're doing too. Because he pretty quickly starts to deduce that the gorillas are starving in their own way. They're, they dealt with their kind of their main food source for a variety of reasons. And as a result of his actions, he's effectively committing a form of forced culling, or if you want to assign more sentience to them, genocide in terms of protecting what he has now deemed his people. The Old Testament comparisons here are very key, because he's essentially decided who his chosen people are, and everyone else is essentially lambs to the slaughter to protect his chosen people. Yes. And he, he they, is they Bob and question, shall have no other Bobs before him. <laughs> very much so. Uh, Bob with a W, apparently. Um <laughs> And they direct both Marvin and Bob directly question the morality of this because it they've chose they've picked who their chosen people are going to be, but does it make it more, in any way morally justified to essentially eradicate those who are a threat to them when they're just a species with as much rights to function and performing their natural acts as anyone else? Yeah, and and I think what Bob essentially lands on, which honestly I don't think is unreasonable, is one of the species has culture, has a society and the other are animals um, mm -hmm. and don't have a similar culture and society. And in an ideal world, they would be in separate areas and the survival of one species would not be dependent on killing any individuals of the other, but there is a choice to be made. It has to be made. And if it isn't, or, or if he doesn't start killing the gorilloids, the choice will be made for him, and the deltans will die. Right. It's like how we'll drain a slum we'll, to errat prevent mosquitoes from spreading malaria or something. We will drain a swamp. Sure, there are a, a species that has much right to exist as we do, but if they're an imminent threat to our existence, we will do what's necessary to protect us. And Bob has decided who is in his camp and who isn't. Yeah, uh, let's be careful on those political references, like draining the swamp. Um, we might lose some <sighs> listeners there. Ah, there is so much of the, American, the English language that's being lost in our day-to-day -day basis. But, okay, <laughs> moving on to a different point. Um, it kind of really wraps us up where we are for Bob, where he eventually you know, charts a course for his people to enter into the Promised Land without forcing them to spend several decades of penitence wandering the desert. You know, nice on Bob for that. Yeah, he's um, learned from past mistakes. It's fine. Um, and it, well, admittedly, the Deltons did not build a golden bull, which was a wise decision on their yes. part. Yes, um, you know that they, they have only one Bob, and so far, maybe maybe they'll have Mario next time, but but we'll see. I found it interesting that they really don't appear to have much in the way of a religious system before he shows up. I mean, they've got their own kind of cultures, they've got their own uh, aspects of their traditions, particularly the, like the old medicine lady. But um, in terms of actual, say, religious or animist belief. He doesn't really observe much. They don't really, uh, they haven't really developed in that way, I suppose. I mean, uh, I think that our knowledge of our own history is that uh, more formal religions, even like reasonable polytheism, took quite a long time to uh, formulate. And so back, I mean, maybe at that point there was some sort of animism or, or something along those lines, but, mm -hmm. but. I think that that as far as our our best theories are going, that that's essentially like what the the points that we would have been at um, right. at that time. We're 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 kind of hamstrung because it's hard to, to to say depict religious thought or clear religious belief in like gods or whatever else in like cave paintings. Written written language has helped a lot in terms of us knowing 
more about ancient people's written um, religious beliefs. Yeah. Bef- going, going before the development of the written word and established cultures in one fixed place, we can't really do much other than assume. We know that, you know, as you talked about, that Neanderthals would put various uh, burial goods in graves. Was that religious belief or was this just cultural practice of coping with grief? Yeah. Can't really know. Yeah, you can't but know. You and, said, and, you know, but it, but it seems reasonable and, and we have our best guess. And, you know, you have to undergo a bunch of technology development until Leonard Nimoy says that you've come up with polytheism <laughs> or monotheism. So, Oh, civilization, we adore you so much. <laughs> They're working um, on it. And as we talked about, this is a society that's barely able to survive day to day. They don't really have much of a time to ponder philosophy at this moment. Though they start to in their own ways once they've, you know, got the means to acquire resources, the means to protection, and also an almighty floating glowing protector. Huh. Um, that kind of finishes off, I think, where we are for um, the uh, Deltons. Yeah, I, I, I think our, the, they do essentially establish the beginnings of a city in the quote-unquote promised land at, at the end of this book and, and have essentially found their old supply of flint and mm-hmm. are sort of building Food from resources. there. And that, and that I think that Dennis Taylor does a really good job of tying up enough of a loose end that if you finished at this book, it wouldn't be painful. Right. You could finish this book and you would still have your own complete arcs of stories, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, so the Deltons um, are essentially at this point in a place where you're not really wondering about what's happen- what's going to happen next, but... There's definitely, this isn't happily ever after, but you can see that that might be a path that they're going on. Continuing the uh, Old Testament references, doesn't he name Archimedes' wife uh, Delilah or something like that? Yeah, I I, I think he does. Um, Again, you (laughs) know, the creativity with the naming isn't great. That one's a little more creative. Um, Oh yeah, it's, it's, it's creative and it's entertaining. Um, you know, maybe she'll cut his wings or something like that. You know, it'll be fine. It certainly reflects his opinion of her with respect to this story. Yes, very much so. Um, for those of us that are not as uh, well familiar with the Bible, Delilah was tying into the story of Samson and Delilah. She cut his hair, he grew weak, turned to disaster. It's another old biblical tale that we're referencing here. Yes. Um, and so again, you know, Dennis Taylor's using particular touch points of society to basically bring you into this world where clearly this other girl in the society that Archimedes is casting eyes at and you know this is a little bit of foreshadowing you know may play a role later in the balance of power in the society and Bob doesn't want Archimedes to be distracted by um, a pretty set of wings and wants them to to really work on developing their technology. Which, if we're continuing the comparisons of um, Bob, you know, projecting himself into Archimedes, maybe, maybe he's drawing a bit from his own uh, last faulty, damaging relationship in that regard. Yes, the she who will not be named. Also, that she just plain doesn't like Bob and is uncomfortable with him and that wants to monopolize Archimedes' affections and time. So it could just be broke jealousy, too. Yeah, um, fair enough. But as for Riker on Earth, I think we left off effectively where he has defeated the uh, Brazilian probes. Yes. And has established a degree of contact with, uh, is, it, is it actually Colonel Butterworth? Yes. Uh, which is just hilarious to me. Um, 
who is one of the last surviving commanders of the uh, United uh, the uh, United Europe essentially. Uh, yeah, who, essentially, uh, yeah. Has about twenty thousand survivors in a stored base, a, a relatively safe uh, and well maintained base underground. Um, but it's on a world that is in its essentially dying stages. That within perhaps only a period of decades, Earth will be full on in the middle of a nuclear winter or a mix between nuclear winter and asteroid impact winter, thanks to the over, overly excessive creativity with the military technology in this particular conflict. And so, our, our Bob in that situation, who is, uh, what is it, it's, it's Riker and Homer, the primary ones that are there, I believe, Yes. Uh, are caught between a bit of a rock and a hard place. They have come back to Earth to find out about its current state and now feel an obligation to try to keep what's left of humanity alive. But there's very little practical means by which they can do so on a planet that is inevitably heading towards thousands, if not millions of years of very inhospitable recovery. Yeah. So they pretty quickly deduce that they have, I'd say, two goals. Goal number one, keep the humans that are on Earth alive as long as possible so that goal number two, build colony ships so they can find someplace else to put them, actually has time to come into effect. Yeah. Neither of these have much of a chance of working right now because A... Nuclear winter is rapidly consuming the ability of anyone on Earth to actually make their own food. And B, at least at present, when Riker first starts this mission, he doesn't know of any other worlds that he can take them. Right, and he's also, which is fairly important and a a feature that I appreciate of the book, he doesn't know about the faster-than-light communication that Bill and Garfield came up with a couple chapters ago because... It hasn't got back to him yet. He doesn't have faster-than-light communication, so they only have, essentially, light-speed communication, so it takes a long period of time for the tech upgrade. I mean, they're they're pushing the Windows upgrade, but it hasn't reached him yet, and he'll have to do a forced <laughs> restart soon, but not quite yet. God help us if Windows upgrades have to travel 12 light-years before they arrive, because I think it's <laughs> about the distance between where... Um, where Bill and uh, Riker are now separated by. Right. So he goes about his plan of where he's going to try to put together as many colony ships as possible, just under the hope that eventually a message will get back to him that some of the other Bobs have succeeded and have actually found colonized worthy worlds. Uh, But but you say as many as possible, but I think they've sort of settled on like two or three. I think it's the only, that's the max amount of resources they have in system that they can be able to build them. Maybe they're later hoping that they can get other bobs to transport resources, but three is about their initial hope for their first run of ships. Right. Um, also, he's dealing with the fact that, well, those, I think he determines it's, what, 15 million survivors that are on Earth, which is just... An impossible number, given that each of these colony ships can move, I think it's 10,000? I think it's a little bit more than that, but yeah. It's in like the tens of thousands range, not the millions range. Right. So it's going to take an incredible number of trips to make this happen. Um, And so many, many years, given the limits of of, uh, lightspeed travel. So he quickly deduces that there's a couple problems. One, keeping every, every bit of humanity alive. Point number two, well, the survivors of humanity are individuals who've just made it through a massive war where everyone was trying to kill each other. 
they aren't inclined to forget the old grudges that led the conflict to happen in the first place and are in no way inclined to share resources or sacrifice resources in any way that don't help their immediate interests in survival and getting the hell out of Earth. So Riker, unfortunately, is put in the unenviable task of being essentially the chairman of the UN, a UN full of people that are actively hating each other for a variety of both practical and also utterly illogical but understandable reasons. Um, and and in this time, he also uh, makes contact with essentially the remnants of Faith, um, <laughs> who there are a couple of like fun little bits where um, they're like, all right, well, execute plan 7-alpha-4-3-5-6-9. He's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, fuck you roundly, call over. Oh, oh yeah, that was uh, my obey everything you say sequence. Yeah, well, that was cool, but um, no. I'll, it, it, it's fun to see the various ways that Faith tries to get a, ben, a bit of an edge, because he quickly deduces that there are certain set power groups that are still around. There's Colonel Butterworth, and arguably, arguably the single most powerful faction that still remains, those survivors and their fallout shelters in uh, what remains of Europe. There's what remains of Brazil, which has one of the largest populations, but everybody hates them for blaming them for the conflict. And then there is a faith base around, I think, where you are, around like the Southern California area, isn't there? Yeah, I, I think that's it. But I would say that there's one very major power, essentially, oh. um, because they have access to the Svalborg Seed Vaults. Ah, yes, there are the, uh, what, what are they called? Uh, they are technically part of the uh, European Union, but they've essentially set off their own course. W what's their name again? Like the SIDS or something? Um, blank, blanking on their uh, Essentially, they're surviving on the northern Fjord Islands where we actually do have a, a uh, seed vault stored in the event of any kind of apocalyptic event. So it's Svalbard. To keep the Earth around. Yes, the, the global seed vault. And there, you should definitely look it up online if you're not familiar with it. Super cool pictures. And um, apparently only 4.6 stars uh, on Google reviews, uh, 266 of them. It's only the future of humanity in the, in the event of a global catastrophe. But, you know, there are much more fun events to go out there for an, even, for an evening out. Um, they oh, quickly... oh, 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 my God. Um, so I just looked it up and uh, we're going to take a slight detour um, to, to read some of the reviews. Um, people better wake up. They are keeping these seeds so the rich people who lived in bunkers after the Earth had numerous nuclear bombs dropped on it, the rich can regrow food since they had the seeds in a vault hidden from people. It's a public location, you idiot. Um, there's a reason this place exists. You may think it's to feed us all, but it's for the 1% to regrow food after a global catastrophe that will wipe out 99% of life. If you don't believe, check out Georgia Guidestones. They don't care about us. That's why they feed garbage GMOs. Time to wake up. Oh my god. This, this might be my favorite thing. This is not my favorite thing. Why did you share this with me? I was happier before knowing this. Okay. People, people are good. Did Fortran have is Fortran having fun with this Google this uh, Google homepage? Well, I'm gonna have to pull these up. These sound fun now. Yeah, it, it it's just impressive. Um, but but yeah. So essentially, one of the factions has access to the seed vault and basically says, "Look, 
we have access to the seed vault. You're going to need this if we're going to colonize a new planet. Mm-hmm. We need to have at least some priority or screw you guys. We're not giving you the seed vault. Yeah. And it becomes all the more relevant once, as you said, message finally gets back to him that A, immediate fashion light communication exists. And B, as a result of that, we've found two twin worlds that we've probably named after Star Trek things where we can start taking people. So the three colony ships that they're building actually have practical purpose, but in terms of deciding who is going to uh, get priority, it quickly becomes a bit of a contentious issue. As you uh, given that the uh, Colonel Butterworth provided the original um, plans design for the, specs, uh, yeah, the colony ships. He and his people get priority for basically the first two, but for the third ship, it quickly becomes a bit of a subject of debate of where. Those who run the seed vault want to certainly to get priority. Uh, what meanwhile, Faith under I think it's like Minister Cranston are basically trying to do everything in their power to get an in with uh, Riker, including ultimately trotting out his ancestors. Descendants, sort of. Yeah, sorry, descendants. Yeah. Um, who he pretty much, in spite of himself, despite knowing exactly what they're intending to do immediately starts to bond with and is desperate for the connection with. Yeah, and and basically the the woman that they trot out looks almost exactly like his now, you know, hundreds of years deceased deceased sister. But they do make a good, you know, Faith is basically trying to tug on his heartstrings, but they also have a fairly er arable land that, you know, Mm -hmm. they can work with, and they have a very large population. And so basically, if they move Faith, they can move other people into where Faith was, and he can rescue a large chunk of the population fairly quickly and easily. Right. And Faith is also willing to essentially provide all of their surplus extra resources, which no one else is willing to do, to support the other outlying nations that are otherwise unable to care for themselves. And so as a result of this pretty clever bit of marketing... It's eventually decided that while the uh, proper UAE will get the first two ships, the uh, those who run the Seed Vault and Faith will actually get to share the third with a few other extra people left behind. Yes, and so um, we sort of glossed over the... What, f- food? Well, I was going to say Homer. Um, we have glossed over Homer to a remarkable degree, yes, which I'm sure Riker would prefer we do. Yes, but but basically this is starts to be where Homer comes into his own and a little bit more of his own character and actually play a role other than uh, number Being three to number two Riker. Um, yeah. And sort of his, you know, goofy lackey that is mostly there for somewhat annoying comic relief. He's the one that really engineers a lot of these negotiations because Riker is very hard-nosed. Riker is not very personable and is just sort of like, all right, let's just get it done. And Homer understands that, you know, it requires a little bit of a softer touch. So Homer's the one that really negotiates with the uh, head of the seed vault and um, Cranston and Colonel Butterworth, the who's going to be on what ship, how basically the shuffling around of the rest of humanity to save as many people as possible is going to actually happen, as well as doing his best to figure out how 
to save as many people as possible in terms of tech development. Right, which uh, eventually leads him to essentially construct a massive series of space donuts that grow edible kudzu. So he's providing a large-scale, easily um, easily access solar resources means of um, feeding the Earth that is rapidly unable to feed itself. And I think uh, also what, some, like, rabbits or something. Yeah, they start adding meat to it, which seems really inefficient to start growing that, but hey, it's, it's, it's their space donuts. They can do with them as they wish. Yeah. The, the particular growth of Homer I found interesting, because it kind of feeds into one of the theories I have, which I think is more apparent in the second book if we ever end up talking about it. But it seems like with a lot of the bobs that when they're first, I'll just say born, when they're first cloned, um, they all have starkly different personalities, which immediately puts all the bobs off. They're already uncomfortable with cloning and now seeing that they are entirely different, apparently different people the moment they come into being really freaks them out. Leads Bob Prime to basically just leave them all behind and go off on his own just to avoid this particular issue. But... It, it becomes apparent that they seem to be just emphasizing different aspects of Bob's character, but it also becomes apparent that the longer that they're around, particularly when they're around each other, they all kind of seem to eventually, regardless of how starkly different they start, start to mature into roughly the same point. See, it's as if it, I, I, I guess, I, well, I guess I'll, I'll let you finish, but I guess I disagree in some fundamental aspects, but go ahead. We'll get there. Okay, my, 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 my idea is basically that they're either essentially... Perhaps that uh, as a result of being exposed to the world wrong enough, being exposed to various aspects of it, they essentially start to either develop the more complete Bob personality, or at least in close proximity with each other, start to just develop along common lines and develop a better way of working together, even more common personality types. Because Riker comes to the view that he's not even really sure how to take Homer at first, that Homer starts to mature. Um, while at the same time, Riker, more so in book two than book one, starts to really start developing a certain degree of nuance and even sense of humor that he otherwise had lacked at first as well. You have a different view on the subject, though. Yeah, um, I think that they start out a lot more similar, but there there are differences, but in as a whole that they are lar- more similar mm-hmm. rather than fairly different. Um, and I guess I don't know if you've had this experience, but... When you meet people that have a similar personality to you, you can mm-hmm. get along famously or you can hate their guts. And it sort of depends on like what the differences are. And there are definitely some people that I've met that rubbed me so the wrong way when I met them. And maybe I didn't hate them, but like we clashed a lot more. And looking back mm-hmm. on it, I to me, it's there are a lot of things that we overlapped in terms of personality or, or how we dealt with things, how we talk, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. There's a guy that um, basically was a friend of a friend in Illinois, and we had overlap in some of the same interests, at least supposedly, and some of the same likes, at least supposedly, and sort of how we talked and our sense of humor. And I hated his guts because he didn't actually know what he was talking about. But, like, on a superficial level, we sounded very similar. (laughs) And I could not stand being around him. Um, And it it was very funny because uh, basically our mutual friend um, 
I think he ended, we ended up being closer. So, and it wasn't a super big deal. So the whiskey on the weekends, uh, in it's sort of a title that I came up with, but something that I would do with his friend was there was a bar in Illinois that had, um, uh, whiskey Wednesdays. And so that we'd go fairly often to try new whiskey on the Wednesday. I've described this in, um, our whiskey on the weekend podcast. Um, and so this other guy showed up one time and like we superficial stuff, we had a conversation and clearly we had sort of vaguely similar sense of humor. He like brought up Mm -hmm. something and then at some point it must've been scotch week. And so he was like, Oh, I don't really like whiskey. I only like bourbon. And I just like, I looked at him and I was just like, well, okay, but like bourbon is whiskey. You know, it's kind Mm -hmm. of like how squares are rectangles too. And, and, you know, it's basically a specific delineation. And, and he just started looking at me like, all right, why the fuck, why are you telling me this? Like, seriously, dude, like, I know what I like. I like bourbon and I don't like whiskey. Okay. Like, I guess technically you're correct, but like, whatever. And I was just like, all right, like, this dude's a friend of a friend. Like, I should be an adult and try and make a decent impression. And then he started talking about cars. And I don't have a great love of cars, but there are certain cars that I like. And, you know, there are things that I like about them. And um, he had a Subaru WRX, which is a car that I kind of wanted, but... It was a little bit more money than I wanted to pay, and I ended up going with a Honda instead, and he was complaining about it, and he was like, yeah, so it has a turbocharger, which means that the gas mileage I get is so much worse than it would be otherwise, and I was kind of like, that's not how that that works. Like, I'm pretty sure, like, it's a compression ratio thing, and actually improves your fuel consumption at least gives you more power at you know rather than at the cost of burning fuel and if anything it like improves you know your your the the uh, efficiency of the engine so that wouldn't really and he was like no 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 totally like i would get you know way better uh fuel efficiency if it weren't for that and i was just like all right i'm done just now be polite but like but there are certain things that i'm sure like if we hadn't gone to those things that that were so different for us and and were just sore points for me we might have been able to be friends and i think that our mutual friend Aton was like oh you know they they both kind of like cars they both you know like whiskey and you know perfect they're both into scientists yeah they're, they're both scientists like yeah i'm sure they'll get along and i was just like I do not want to spend any more time with this person ever. Like, it's cool. Like, if you want to hang out with him, just let me know, and I won't be there. I won't be there. Exactly. And Yeah, I know the feeling. Okay, so I guess that's my impression of some of the Bobs and their differences. And some of them are important differences. Some of them are less important differences. But I think that with the maturity that a lot of them gave, gain as they progress they Mm -hmm. sort of become obviated like i my guess is that you know if he ever sort of 
this other guy ever sort of grew up a little bit, we could be fast friends. And probably as I've grown up, I would not be as much of an asshole to him and just be like, I don't think that's quite how it is, but yeah, okay, sure, dude, whatever. Mm-hmm. Whereas at that point in time, I was just like, I cannot be around this guy. I want to kill him. And so I guess that's how I see the differences in Bob or Bob clones a little bit more as yes, that there are these certain sort of fundamental but minor differences. And eventually as they spend time together, they figure out that these differences have basically no importance on their overall goals. Except for those who are emphasizing his antisocial tendencies to the point that they essentially decide, screw you guys, I'm finding my own path, and just go off into the middle of the cosmos. Yeah, that that's true. But we essentially never see them again, so it's hard to say that what growth that <laughs> they would have undergone had we met that character again. All right. Well, I mean, we've effectively kind of summarized where the plot goes in terms of Riker and Earth. I mean, you've, they've... Now knowing that other worlds exist, he gets his three colony ships sent out, and effectively that plot ends with them deciding which worlds they're going to first settle upon. Yeah, so so they get the information from Bill and Mario that here's uh, infer- the faster-than-light communication, and then they also find out about the discovery of Vulcan and Romulus, which are these two mm-hmm. habitable worlds, and so they have a place to send the colony ships. Right. And... Throughout these chapters, there's also various other references that kind of more fully set up both the plot of this universe as well as where the plot may be going. In terms of we see essentially one of the first Bob deaths, uh, one at the hands of what appears to be implied to be the um, some other Brazilian probes that have set up in an otherwise habitable system. Another one dying, I think it's Arthur dies just with an accident in terms of he's trying to get resources to build the ship, the um, various colony ships, and one of them just happens to be booby-trapped. Uh, yeah, so, so well, you say accident. Um, there was a new that was set up by the fundamentalists that basically wanted to eradicate uh, humans because they've decided that, like, essentially we're, we're viruses or whatever, um, did he did he die to I think it's called vehement the name of yes. that organization did he die to them or did he just die to a device that had been set up on a space station that he was trying to mine um I think it was a um, carrier going to or from one of the uh, habitation well not habitation rings the uh, farming rings the donuts yeah so the donuts so like it I think it blew up a piece of a donut and ham at the same time. Well, it's, it, we, sh- we should introduce the uh, vehement organization because they are interesting. It's essentially an organization that believes, okay, humanity messed up. We caused our own faith. We are a blight upon both this world and the universe, and the best thing that we can do is march arm in arm into oblivion. Yes. We, we should voluntarily cease to exist. And I, I think he's taking a little bit of that from some fringe organizations that essentially exist in our society that it's just like, all right, you know, we've done terrible damage to the planet. You know, either we should be killed or we should essentially go back to caveman times and ignore all the technology that we have because it's only brought us pain um, or pain upon the, the earth. 
given the influence of Thomas Malthus, I refer to those people as neo-Malthusians, those that believe that pretty much any check upon humanity's further growth or even, you know, in their view, positive factors that limit or decrease the human population are things to be encouraged. Uh, Vehement takes those to the utmost extreme and basically is saying, we should voluntarily march into extinction. And if you disagree, I'll help you along with that. Yeah, Uh, we have nukes. We can help. Don't worry about it. And uh, they go into a lot more detail about them in the second book in terms of where else that they may go. In terms of other things that are going on, is that one probe is wiped out, uh, one bob is wiped out by various uh, a Brazilian base that he finds. Another one finds evidence that there may be other forms of intelligent life on the world, but they essentially function kind of like interstellar locusts, yeah. using tiny little nanoprobes to help their purposes. So Linus, um, of I believe Peanuts fame, I'm guessing, mm-hmm. um, is... Uh, oh, so, sorry, that, that was a different one. Um, that was a different little outshoot. Um, I think it's, is it Milo? Yes. It, it's the one that's originally Mar- really it's antisocial. Mario. Mario. Um, it's, so, Beta Hydri. Um, mm-hmm. so Mario visit, you know, sort of goes off and visits Beta Hydri and sort of does his initial scan and there's no metal which is sort of surprising because, you know, he can't do any repairs, he can't build anything else, he can't set up a station to, like, build a copy of himself, and he's sort of, like, trying to figure out what's going on and is doing more in-depth scans and basically finds a bunch uh, and sends out some roamers and finds a bunch of ants that just sort of eat his roamers and then go dormant after they make a bunch of copies of themselves. And so he's sort of curious, like, what is this? What's going on? And so he relays back this information that, like, there's some other technology that seems to be out in the universe that we don't understand, that we don't know, and seems to be way ahead of our technology. I think he even finds, like, it's a crashed cargo ship that's loaded up with part of the... uh varieties of minerals that they've been harvesting from these planets not not just minerals that they apparently just kind of flash killed with radiation everything on the world and just loaded up the bodies for their own purposes um, i think really... it might have been a piece of another probe maybe maybe um, anyway uh, it, we don't have much information to go on other than his abject horror that this kind of thing exists in the universe and is another thing they're gonna have to maybe deal with in the future yeah but the, as you said the book very wonderfully ends each of these plot plot lines at a good closed moment for completing what its particular arc is. Yeah. For Riker and um, Homer on Earth, the first colony ships land with their new bobs commanding the colony ships and so chart a new future for humanity. For Bob Prime, he finds a new home for the Deltons and they start to settle into their new Camelot to find a new future. Uh, the various other bobs... I start to establish the form of a Bob Moot through Bill's technology. So everyone kind of closes this arc, but with various other tendrils that suggest where new concerns or new threats might be, should you be interested in exploring them in the next book. Yep. So, it, it, as I said, it provides readers who only have time to read the first book a good completeness, while at the same time giving them hints and foreshadowing for what may come out. Yes. Oh, so Milo was the one that was killed by Medeiros. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Funny enough, the the person that was sent out to revenge Milo or to lead the revenge um, is Khan. 
Continuing the various references. Yeah, it's continuing the various references. The the military expedition to exact revenge on um, Medeiros is led by Khan. Um, mm-hmm. And um, basically he and... Uh, An elite team of various well-armed bobs yes. in their new heaven spaceships. A- essentially the battle bobs um, go out and, and take out Medeiros and avenge Milo. Um, and mm-hmm. so sort of all of the suffer pretty extreme casualties in the process, suggesting that the the bobs are getting a little bit flippant with their later generations just on the idea that, eh, we'll make a copy of it. It'll be fine. Just not really caring about the fact that it, it is still death for the one that's dying. Well, so at this point, they do have the server upload capacity. So which they which they both raise it kind of mixed views about, though, that. If I die doing this, is it me that's really being uploaded? Yes. Um, I, I think that they've uh, successfully started to address the transporter paradox in uh, Star Trek. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and he, he, I'm sure he has read, you know, or when I say he, Dennis Taylor has read some, some of that uh, philosophical ar- arguing and decided to incorporate it into the books. Um, and so for those of us, the reader or listeners and readers of this book, hopefully that aren't familiar with that, basically the transporter technology in Star Trek is your murder box. What? It's a murder box. Well, that's one view of it, Spencer. That is my view of it. Yes. Go on. Basically your atoms are, uh, disassembled and then your being is transferred as data to another point, and then you're reassembled into the uh, same structure that you were elsewhere. And so sort of the question is, are you getting killed, and then basically something else is being reborn that presumably has otherwise same experiences, and so each time you're either being murdered or committing suicide, and then reappearing elsewhere, or is this just your moving from one place to the other um, as the transporter uh, Nom de Guerre would have you believe. It's a fascinating little philosophical puzzle because it's like a further continuation of the ship of Theseus. It's the idea that, you know, ship of Theseus is the old philosophical concept of a boat crosses an ocean and throughout the journey they replace all the parts of it. So a boat arrives at the end, but it's entirely made of new material than the one that arrived. This is going the idea of the boat crosses the ocean we disassemble the boat entirely before it arrives, and then upon arriving, we put it all back together. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, or or you could, you know, when you shut down your computer and travel to North Carolina and boot it back up, is it a different computer? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's it's one of those things that if you chop a person into several thousand parts but and then keep them as separate parts throughout the entirety of the journey, and then put them all back together, you kind of work under the assumption that you killed them. It seems more like you're making a clone, essentially, at that point, than you are putting back together the same person. We we don't really have a concept of the idea of being disassembled into your base component atomic parts and being put back together, having any effective continuity for that. Yeah, I I, I guess. Yeah. I think that there are arguments to be made on either side, but I think, I guess the point that we're trying to address is that um, one of the things that 
Bob is trying to comfort himself with and some of his clones are comforting themselves with are basically at any point in time they can do a server backup uh, of their personality and everything else and so death isn't really final um, mm -hmm. and so when they're going off to battle they can back themselves up and so it's more like they're controlling a, a ship and it's not their lives on the line. It's just a hunk of metal that they're controlling. Are they really controlling it across the distances, though? I was kind of working no. under the assumption that the backup was just more saving a copy for in the event of their death. There'd still be a copy of them left that they could bring back up online. Yes, yes. But but I guess as a an internal concept of why they're okay doing this, you know, if they don't survive, they're, they're still, like... There somewhere. <laughs> Small favors, but you know it, it, it keeps them going. And apparently, the desire for the revenge is strong enough that they're willing to name themselves off famous Star Trek revenge figures as they're going out to do this. But it, it shocked me when I first read it that the casualties they suffer are pretty astronomical, and they're not even really sure they win. They inflict, you know, devastating damage upon the uh, Madeiros probes. But it's pretty strongly implied that at the very least there are still AIs cooking it in the system um, while they only really have, was it, one or two survivors of the entire trip among the, among the Bob side? Yeah, it, I mean, it's pretty much that. Yeah, they, they do take very heavy casualties. And I think it's they understand that if they don't do anything in this system, right. that they have it's... a general, essentially, you know, somebody who is a little bit more familiar with war rather than just having read, you know, Sun Tzu's Art of War that yeah. has access to Noose, knows how to make them, and will is coming for him and, and is no longer a, you know, willing to negotiate or anything else, is basically actively gunning for the destruction of everything else in the universe. And I also think that the scorched earth policy shall we say of Medeiros trying to leave a scorched earth um kind of also lended the all right we have to go kill him even if a couple of us die even though Medeiros has a scorched earth policy of essentially leaving a scorched earth it's mm -hmm. because of that that essentially he needs to die even if a couple of us are, are die in the process no, and I agree, ultimately. They, this guy has very much proved himself to be too dangerous to live. If he's given the opportunity to be to set up in a system that clearly has substantial resources, that has habitable worlds, that has any varieties of opportunities for him to clone endless varieties of other Medeiros probes, that's going to be a fundamental danger to everything the Bobs intend to build. They can't allow that just to exist in a vacuum because they have no idea what he can... Well, they have, they're very well aware of what he could potentially accomplish, and it's nothing good for them. And he also so. doesn't seem to care about um, humans, let He's alone any other sentient species. And so now that Bob knows that at least one other one exists, he's not just responsible for humans. He's responsible for presumably every, every other sentient life form that's anywhere near a Medeiros because he's going to be taking up resources that they might otherwise use. And so it's not just the fate of humanity, it's presumably the fate of many other sentient species if they can't fight off Medeiros. Right. And one of the things that he was originally told about the Brazilian probes is very much proven true in the main battles he's fought with them. 
He was being told that they were going to ship very, very well armed and capable of inflicting a lot of destruction on their fellow probes, but they were sacrificing elements in terms of their ability to copy themselves. Each of the times he's fought these Maduro's probes, he's held a decisive numerical advantage. It's only typically been about two or three in each location, which has very much given him an edge, seemingly as a result of the Brazilians' uh, faulty policy about how these probes, what, what particular traits these probes emphasized when they were sent out. Yeah, and I think he amusingly, you know, sort of touts the abilities of a programmer to basically do project design. And so he understands yeah. about, you know, putting in significant amount of resources to get a larger yield at the end, whereas this military planner understands how to use the resources essentially to set up a lot of munitions or whatever else. Well, as is our want, we've spent an hour and 15 minutes summarizing a plot that we were hoping we'd finish in about 30. So how about we move from here on to some philosophical discussion points? Yeah, um, that sounds good. And uh, I I know you came uh, armed with a handful of them, so why don't we start tackling them? I mean, one of the biggest ones I've got to offer is that um, this world that Bob is in, that he has been thrust into, is very much – and I – reference it this way, it's very much his heaven. This is essentially the afterlife that you would always dream about in terms of being a von Neumann probe exploring the cosmos. So you're saying he died in, and woke up in heaven? Uh, he apparently was died and very much was uploaded into heaven, yes. And thank you, Faith, for, keep, for keeping that uh, particular reference going on. How, it's just a personal question, how would you feel on the same if you were uploaded into the same setting? Because the book... It, we haven't referenced him, but the book paints out a scenario that it can be a very terrifying, insanity-inspiring uh, situation to be in, to be uploaded in a probe exploring the cosmos with nothing but eternity at your back. Yeah. Um, so so basically we're, we're pointing vague references to one of the other probes had somebody else who basically was a sailor. They sort of chucked him in a probe and sent him off and said, oh, hope it works out. And he basically went insane. And uh, one of the Bobs uh, essentially uh, rescued him. I think Linus, actually, the one you referenced before. That that was what I was uh, trying to uh, bring up when I was referencing the Beta Hydra and I clicked on the wrong Wikipedia page. (laughs) Gotcha. uh, it, yeah, and it seems that pretty much the only difference between what happened to that guy and what otherwise may have happened to Bob was Bob's coding ability, that he was able to make a uh, essentially holodeck experience for himself in a way that this poor Australian fisherman was not as well equipped to do. Yeah, I, I guess it's uh, – I don't have enough confidence in my coding abilities that I would really successfully <laughs> be able to do the same things that Bob could. Yep. But I also kind of feel like, given enough time, I'd be willing to dedicate myself. I think I could entertain myself eventually. And, you know, given enough of an access to a library and some other entertainment to, you know, keep myself sane, I think I would be fine until I got to the point where I essentially could create my own entertainment or clone myself or or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, the intervening couple of years, you know, doesn't sound great, but it also doesn't sound like the worst thing ever if, you know, he can, if I were able to essentially 
make it seem a lot faster by what they call lowering your frame rate. Um, the time dilation and, effects, yeah. Yeah, and also, you know, basically do a lot of reading and other entertainment interspersed with, you know, my poor programming skills trying to do something functional where I guess I'm essentially in a profession where you sort of read about ways to do things and, you know, eventually try and figure out how to accomplish them yourself. Mm -hmm. So is this my idea of heaven? No, I think it would be lonely and kind of boring. And honestly, you know, to a certain extent, the motivation to explore on the basis that they're talking about where you get to do something exciting once every 15 20 years maybe doesn't seem that appealing to me yeah the book kind of just glosses over the uh the enormity of the travel that is required and it gives our main characters um, a means of doing so through this whatever time dilation effect this dialing of their time that they're able to do but as you said as certain movies like 2001 have so very effectively portrayed space travel is going to be very, very boring. It will have wonderful moments when the destinations are reached, until you then have to move on to the next one, but the majority of it's just going to be traveling through the void that is space. It is going to be lonely, it is going to be tedious, it is going to be mind-numbing. And in the case of those who aren't able to build their own means of entertainment, it will be insanity-inspiring. So I can understand why Bob is very well equipped to do this, and perhaps given... Similarly limitless amounts of time, I could also learn to do it myself, but yeah, I don't, I, this is not the heaven that I would imagine for myself as it is apparently for Bob. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are things that, that you know, you sort of could end up finding yourself like begrudgingly doing, but this isn't, this isn't really my idea of fun. Right. Um, I, I think that there are aspects of it that are super interesting. You know, I, I would... I think the exploration of Delta Eridani and, you know, a new species and, you know, some of the research that they're trying to do on physical applications. I mean, all that sounds like fun and something that I could sort of get behind, but the 10 years of kind of doing nothing and, or, you know, spending a year or whatever it is to get another copy going is, you know, would be terrible. And then the other side of it is everything essentially works the first time. He successfully copies himself three times without any flaws. And so, yes, I understand that we're dealing with tech that's far in the future because, you know, they can revive, well, quote unquote, revive somebody from cryogenically frozen. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever built your own computer or anything like that, but the, the number of times that... I've built something with absolutely no testing, and then the first time it works perfectly is really, really small. Few and far between. I mean, for the most part, like, I eventually get it, and it's up and running and functional and how I want it, but it's not the I connect all the wires and put everything into place that I think needs to be there. I flip the switch on, and it's perfect. Yeah. It's also practically for me, just I... I am not immortal, and I don't have any concept of eternity. And so perhaps if I was put into a Bobby, the Bob state of where I am now truly an immortal machine, I'd be more okay with it. But it, it, it's harder for me to process the idea of 10 years of travel for the purpose of then being exciting, working for me. But 
maybe if I'm put in that kind of state, not that I would have much choice from there on out, I'd be more okay with it or just more in a different philosophical mindset to accept it. Fair enough. I mean, so you're saying, you know, spending a number of years and, you know, essentially absorbing a lot of information and, you know, being able to readily recall that information just doesn't sound like a fun time to you. I'm saying that there are positive aspects and there are negative aspects, and I would dwell more on the negative than he apparently does. So you're saying after, you know, a couple of years of absorbing information, you're not super comfortable with that, you know, like law school? <laughs> Well, yeah, I also got to share the law school experience with other people. I got to have friends. I got to have relationships. I got to have some degree of involvement. It wasn't just me talking with my Admiral. Essentially, my Wilson volleyball that I put in the form of Admiral Akbar. That's true. Now, uh, I have another one, if, unless you'd like to jump in with your own uh, philosophical talking point. Uh, go ahead. Well, this one t- ties into uh, Delta Redonde, like we were talking about. Where do you stand on the idea of a prime directive? Because it's something that our own... Astrophysicists are debating to no end and pretty much strongly trumpeting is that we, upon entering another alien world or, inter- or interacting with another alien society, should do as much as possible to have no impact. That um, we, if we actually try to colonize another world, should do everything in our power to not disturb the existing ecosystems. If we encounter another alien race, we should do everything in our power to not overly influence them. It's like our philosophies nowadays in terms of encountering a uh, previously... There's not many of these anymore, but a tribe that's not been exposed to the outside world. Do you think we should adhere to those scenarios in the future uh, in general? And do you think we should adhere to those scenarios in the situation that Bob himself encounters? Ooh, uh, that's kind of a tough one. And I, I, I think I have, at least in my mind, what seems reasonable to me and, and I guess it would be my answer is that, you know, if they're so far behind our technology that you can't make contact Mm -hmm. then you essentially leave them alone unless essentially unless you're in the situation that bob is and and the situation that bob is in doesn't seem to me to be particularly reasonable you know basically he's at the very unlikely point of a separate species has evolved into what's essentially not a niche and hasn't developed in any particular way apart from a rival species that its only niche seems to be it's big and strong. And so presumably the development of intelligence would have been over long enough and would have given enough advantage that they would have thrived a little bit more. So I guess like the actual scenario in real life doesn't seem like something that would really happen in my mind. It, it, they seem to be painting a scenario that's almost making it easier for him to make the call that he does. He's, it's, a, yes. it's arriving at so many various perfect moments so as to make what otherwise would, could be a very tortuous decision effectively morally easier. Uh, that's your opinion on it too? Yeah, I, I, it essentially is. Um, I guess if you're not of that opinion, tell me where you draw the line. Because, you know, if basically you have another civilization that's at least far enough advanced to contact you, have a concept of you, and, and interact, mm-hmm. and then to say, I don't really care about you guys, no. Well, do you think that you should... that 
you know, if uh, Canada develops a new drug to combat some disease, they should just kind of be like, all right, well, you guys didn't figure it out. And, you know, we don't want to, you know, mess with the development of your country. Mm -hmm. So um, why don't you guys just die of cancer? An interesting comparison there. So, I, I, I mean, I guess I, I have a different view because of the profession that I'm in, where if you don't share the developments that you have in science, nothing happens, like, things don't happen anywhere near as quickly. Right. And so to essentially come up to another civilization and be like, well, you don't deserve any of our knowledge because it would change you just seems so silly to me. And, you know, yeah, you know, you don't go in and kill them and you don't go in and, and try and set up their society. You try and share more as equals um, but the concept that a that we that either we we interact with a society that basically has no semblance of technology that we can deal with, but has enough technology to interact with us, just seems very far fetched to me. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't know what we'll end up encountering. It's part of the reason that I mean. As much as we like to mock the Prime Directive, it seems like something that we would want to have in effect as we're storing the cosmos, because we're pretty desperately hoping that we may eventually, in terms of, well, A, we'll eventually be able to explore the cosmos, and B, we actually will encounter other sentient life out there. It would be good to have a game plan in place. So it, it is interesting to ponder what we would do in some more circumstances. Yeah, and also, I essentially think what many people have termed the golden rule mm-hmm. to to be a reasonable application. You know, if there are other friendly species out there somewhere, we kind of would like to be like, to have them say hi and, you know, maybe not take over our society or something like that. But it'd be super cool if they could share some, you know, interesting technology or, or scientific advances or, or whatever else. And I think that even in Star Trek, when they quote the prime directive, it's never, you know, to other species being like, don't interfere with us. It's more like, Hey, uh, hey, hey, Romulans, like you have, or, or Vulcans, you have cool cloaking technology. Like, can we get some of that rather than like, oh no, I think this is going to affect our internal society. Like, we don't want to have any part of it. Mm-hmm. it. So, I, I think that the Prime Directive is a little bit, um, shall shall we say, privileged mm-hmm. <laughs> in that we think that we're better than every everybody else that we're going to come in contact with. And so we can't bring them up to the same speed that we are. And they're going to be so far behind us that it's, it, you know, we're just going to contaminate their way of life. It's kind of an arbitrary point, too, because I think the Prime Directive is built around the idea that you had to have developed warp travel first. Now, once you've developed warp travel, we can give you everything because, you know, otherwise we'd be very hypocritical given that we developed warp travel and then the Vulcans gave us everything that let us become part of the interstellar community. Um Personally, I kind of always adhere more. You ever seen the movie uh, Contact? Uh, very long ago, and I barely remember it. I think this was uh, 
Late night, lots of drinking. <laughs> it's also a great book by Carl Sagan, too, but it, it one of the codas of it is that, you know, it can be an incredibly lonely universe that's essentially only bearable if we have each other. Um, and that seems in many ways, it would, it would almost seem to be desperately frustrating um, and sad if we encounter another alien race, but then feel morally obliged to know they exist, but not interact with them. That seemed to almost just compound the loneliness of an empty universe if we are aware of other species, but then voluntarily choose to remain alone regardless. Yeah, it's like, you know, there are only two people left in the world and, and they friend zone each other. <laughs> well, you know, that other guy's an asshole. I'm not interacting with him. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It, it's, I think it's sort of a interesting moral question until you start really thinking about it and then it becomes a like well that doesn't make any sense mm -hmm. I mean, you can uh, you can obviously do it wrong there's obviously steps you should take in terms of how you handle the process just to avoid unnecessary conflict or risk of various tensions but the risk of that should not lead you to just never even take the chance yeah uh, and I, I, I completely agree with that. I, there's no, really no question in my mind that, you know, as, as fun as the Prime Directive is as a story piece in Star Trek, that I, I don't think it's applicable to any real-life scenario. Uh, as said, um, I mean, for like that uh, isolated tribe that's, in the, that's off, the coast, uh, off the coast of the Indian Ocean that has no contact with the outside world, we're essentially doing a legal prime directive with respect to them right now, of where it's illegal for people to go to their islands. It's illegal to interact with them. They are purposely remaining isolated because it's viewed that since they have no exposure to the outside world, it would be inherently damaging or destructive to them for us to just appear upon them. Yeah, and but I think that goes back to what I said with the ability to communicate. Sure, that's fair. That's a fair they, point. You know, to say that they have the ability to communicate with us, I mean, yes, is vaguely technically true because we have the ability to learn a new language. But essentially, if we're to do that, we are forcing them to adopt technology that they have essentially seen fit not to because, you know... Maybe they they weren't ex, you know they had they haven't been exposed to very modern technology, but my guess is that you know a couple hundred years ago there are enough people around there that you know there was some exposure mm -hmm. and they said thank you no. Yeah, I, I also fundamentally believe that if in the event we discover that they're dying of a plague, we will probably abandon those pretenses and go in to actively try to cure them in a similar scenario that we're seeing playing out, Bob. Yeah. Um. And so, you know, as long as they're surviving just fine or, you know, we don't know that something bad is going on, there's no reason not to sort of leave them be. And, you know, I'm guessing like a lot of other people and animals and, and all sorts of things that we know if, in this world, if they desperately need help and they, you know, they'll try and find it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, as in terms of their desperate need for help, apparently, didn't they kill a Christian missionary like three weeks ago? Uh, so yeah. Further indication they kind of just want to be left alone. I mean, I may or may not agree with their stance on missionaries, so. <laughs> okay, we'll go into that point later. We're losing, li losing <laughs> listeners right and left with that. Um, you, have, you have a talking point you want to go into? 
Um, I think we've covered a lot of them. Um, you brought up actually one of the talking points that I wanted to bring up, which was uh, basically the similarity of the Bobs and how you feel about that. I mean, um, if we go into books two and three, I kind of need to use my theory as a way of explaining the fact that the Bobs start to sound really, really similar as time goes on in these books. It's not as apparent in these early ones. They maintain a nice degree of separation and individuality, but as you get later into the series, I'm not sure if it's intentional or just a bit of laziness on the part of the author, but the Bobs start to seem like they're all the same Bob. Yeah. Um, I, there, there definitely is some of that concept. Um, and I guess the... I think the other major point that I'd be curious to hear your take on is, and and I, well, I know the answer because I know you well enough, but at least let you expound on it, which is, you know, if you're in Bob's position and you can essentially set up your own society, how much of an obligation, how, how much do you agree with Bob's obligation to help humanity? And because he's essentially no longer part of it. And I guess it's how much of a sense of charity do do you agree with having for essentially another race? Uh, That's a fun point to make because Bob himself seems to be warring. uh, Various Bobs seem to be warring uh, to a certain degree with this concept. Are we Bob? Are we a human derivative, or are we a truly separate race that should have no loyalty or obligation or any interest in anything that was associated with what we once were? I hope in a similar state that I would maintain a certain degree of loyalty to humanity, even if I am no longer one of them. Um, I mean, I would hope that if I came across a sentient species, even if I was entirely unrelated to it, and I found them in similar circumstances to what humanity is here, I would do everything in my power to help them because it just seems like the right thing to do. It seems like the moral imperative, similar to how he's helping the Deltons. There are so few sentient races seemingly out there in the cosmos. There are so few individuals that reach that level of intelligence and consciousness that having them be lost even to their own stupidity just seems like a loss the universe can't bear. Yeah, and so then comes the follow-up question with what if they said we don't want your help? (laughs) <laughs> a concept that's going to come up later. Um, well, I guess you can I take it in two ways. You either respect their intentions and simply leave, or you do what Bob does, which I would probably do. You become a lot less active and apparent about your degree of support. Yeah. I, I, I think I mostly fall in that category, where it's like you help out as much as you can, mm-hmm. but... I, I, there's part of me that's like, well, it's another sentient being. How can you not respect their wishes? Well, because I'm a sentient being too, and my wish is to help you, damn it. Yeah, well, I'll, respe- that doesn't... I'll respect you enough to not be obtu- to not be obtrusive about it. Well, but I guess I, I think he, I think Dennis Taylor kind of skirts around the very uncomfortable part of Bob knows what's best. Yeah. And when, and we're kind of getting into the next books, they directly confront him with that in a pretty memorable little scene that I quite liked where they basically just say, Hey, we know you can kill us all. It's still our own life. It's still our own fate. We choose to reject you leave. Bob's pretty much left speechless with it. 
and deservedly so, because it, the, the book is book and Bob are forced to confront the fact that he is adopting a pretty superior mindset for what he believes is appropriate for both the Deltons and for the rest of humanity in terms of him feeling that he ultimately knows best. And it's right that he gets called out on that. Yeah, and, and I think that at some point the you say, okay, like, here's how you can reach me if you want my help. Mm-hmm. But I, I just, the, it makes me very uncomfortable to basically be the party that decides that I know what's best yeah. and I'm going to do it to you whether you like it or not. I, I, I suppose the ultimate best decision that you can make is, yes, you said, give them your calling card, but you've got no obligation to leave. You can still watch, you can still observe, you can still effectively take part even if they don't want your help. They can't take that away from you. But I, I guess, as you say, the ultimate moral decision would be to respect their wishes, even if that you, uh, you deem them self-destructive. Yeah, I mean, which seems like so very uncomfortable as a person, where it's just like I have this means of being able to help you. Let me do right. it, and somebody else saying no, and then, but it's like honestly, like thinking about it, it's basically respect for the other person. And if you're going to decide that this is another sentient being, you have to be willing to have them say no. Uh, to to use a classic example for a large portion of humanity, willing to let your children make their own mistakes. Yeah, um, and you know, I I understand, and even other people around you willing to let them make their own mistakes. I mean, I'm sure we've both been in situations where you're observing a friend, an acquaintance, or something, doing something that you know what that endpoint is going to be. And at a certain point, you have to let them do it, even yeah, you, even if you think you know better. Yeah, you advise them. You can even intervene. But at a certain point, when they are fully informed and choose to take their own path, what can you really do? I mean, our, our yeah. listeners have listened to Whiskey on the Weekends, hopefully. So they know that we're, you know, perfectly capable of very poor decision-making and watching others make very poor decision-making. So, yeah, that's definitely part of our own background, too. And I, I think that's one of the major themes that, you know, comes up in this trilogy, but even starts to come up a little bit in in this first book. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's, a good one. That's, a, that's a good one to handle. Uh, it is... Something that the character has not really been forced to confront as much in this first book, but we're starting to get seeds of it, and they definitely come to fruition as time goes on. Yeah, and I think, you know, we covered a little bit of this in the past episode, but something that I wanted to touch on briefly, maybe is our our last point, um, but I think the last prime question that, you know, we, we touched on but didn't do that much on is... What what compromises you? That that's a concept that Bob struggles with for about half a chapter, um, which I kind of wished he'd gone into a bit more because I think it, like, it would be a pretty nettling issue for me. Eventually, I mean, one of the concepts of the book is that he is not Bob. He is not even the first copy of Bob. He's copy number two before he even leaves the planet because his first one's blown up. So. He, at least that he knows of. He even knows of. He knows how many prior derivatives they went to before this one actually achieved consciousness. So, to what degree is he 
A, alive, and B, in any way connected to that which he views himself as, Bob? Uh, those are very difficult questions to answer in my mind, and I uh, kind of wish the book had, got, had struggled with them a little bit more. I think the book struggles with it more with his clones yes. rather than uh, just the, okay, I'm Bob, I'm just going to ignore it. I, I think it does start to address it obliquely in the, you know, all right, well, what if I make a copy and then I, you know, I get killed and then upload that copy? You know, are these copies of myself mm -hmm. still me or are they separate people? To which he, to um, which he seems very, very rigidly wanting them to view as separate people, so that he himself can maintain a certain degree of individuality as a result. That, that one of his first tenets is you have to find a different name for yourself immediately, um, seemingly to in some ways protect his own concept of himself from this very. The fact that he can make identical copies essentially is a bit of an undermining point for his state as a life form i think or his state as a sentient life form i think for just for his state as bob yeah because you know I, you, to, you can define life form in in ways that you know coded it with sentient there, consciousses yeah. or whatever his state as bob depends on him being you know a bob the individual if there are countless actual entities also named bob or in the cosmos it kind of it takes away from his ability to actually express that or for it to be really true well, which I kind of find funny, given that the uh, name of this series essentially is Bobiverse, yeah. and we are Legion. Yeah. Or you know, for for this book, it is we are Legion, um, but the trilogy is called the Bobiverse, yeah. and so that to to essentially take Bob's viewpoint and say that only the you know the ship or you know cube replicant mind is bob almost seems like that's not dennis taylor's concept of what's going on but maybe it's his character the character's warring with the author to a certain degree there i suppose i mean i, I do respect what bob bob in some ways comes to terms with uh this questions about him about himself is that okay well let's say I, i'm not bob let's say bob died back there in the 21st century i'm still me Whatever I am, be it concepts of Bob, I'm still an entity, and that is enough. I if, I if I'm not Bob, whatever, Bob's dead. I'm still myself. I shouldn't really feel a loss as a result of an entity that is not me dying way back in the past. And I can, yes. I can respect that logical resolution to that problem to a certain degree. Yes, you, you appreciate that, that he... Uh went all Descartes on you and, and ended up with the non-Latin version of Cogito Ergo Sum. Yeah, pretty much, with his own little derivative on it that I... There's a couple additional derivatives that I'm trying to remember right now. Again, it's been too damn long since I actually read this thing. But he essentially yeah. does have the Descartian-style analysis of himself and comes to terms with it as a result. Except, as you said, when he's then going into what Descartes did not ponder, his ability to make identical copies. You know, I, I was wondering, you know, where you were going to sort of end up on this. And the question that I was going to pose to you is, are you the same person that woke up yesterday? And that is a philosophical question that none of us can really answer. It, as far as we know, from our perspective, when I go to bed at night, I die and a new me wakes in the morning. How would I know any different? 
I don't have any pers- I don't have any global perspective of consciousness to know that a certain me is maintaining consistence throughout time. Unless I'm stay yes. unless I'm staying awake forever, and even then, who knows moment to moment whether I'm not self-replicating. I'm essentially not the same person I was. Oh, how how frequently is it that we replace nerve cells? I mean, the, the, the ship uh, the ship of Theseus question again there, but there is very little in the way. Essentially, of, your brain cells you never replace. So there is that. Uh, are the brain cells actually never replaced at all? Or the, I, I, I wasn't sure on that point. Uh, yeah, central nervous system essentially doesn't replace, which is why strokes are so problematic. They can't repair themselves, at least not to that, at least, at least not to much degree. Um, yeah, uh-huh. but yeah, we we it's an often pondered question about the uh, ability of humanity to remain continuity, and that when we lose that continuity, how can we in any way prove or establish that we are the same person when that continuity comes back into effect? Yeah, and you know, it's sort of one of those things that is. I think the height of philosophy mm-hmm. and I'd sort of be curious what, uh, Levi's perspective <laughs> on it fun. since he is the, uh, philosophy major of the group. Yeah. Um, but I think the other side of it is, and, and it kind of amuses me that you touched on a, uh, another fairly famous philosopher, um, and his ba- basically, but his concept of God is the presence that, observes everything else and keeps it static mm-hmm. yeah for the for um who, who who was it that said that oh uh spencer it, it's been like almost 20 years since <laughs> undergrad <laughs> since is I've fading in the classes. distance yeah um, I, I do remember that concept i may have been in the same class as you but yes it's a fun concept in terms of that would truly be omnipotence to actually be able to maintain that degree of static perspective on the universe it at some point becomes a very mute, moot question um, because that you have to have a concept outside of experience to start addressing the what happens between our experiences. Yeah. And so I think it sort of ends up being a problem of you have to construct something very, very, very complicated to explain to have an alternate explanation to, yeah, it's just us. And um, I may not shave as much as I should, but Occam's razor would say that that's not a thing. Yeah, I mean, it's... (laughs) Well said, sir. Um, It's one of those things where I kind of ultimately default back to the Bob situation of where, okay, let's say I do die moment to moment. There ain't shit I can do about it. This seems easier just to come to terms with it then. I mean, it seems, you know, if we want to get into real metaphysics here, uh, it seems like in many ways why how we've developed it with the concept of the soul. So we can in- inherently ingrain a persistence into us that we're otherwise uncertain of. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think you could sort of also appreciate the 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 love that, that Bob has for humanity as his soul coming through. Right. Um, and how much it disturbs him that certain of the Bob clones that he produces do not have or maintain that connection. It seems to be growing as the generations go on. Yeah. And, and as you know, maybe we'll get to in later books that there are some Bobs that are just like these humans, the they're, they're ephemeral. Yeah. They, they're not, they're not the same species. They're not the same as us. And so, you know, we've helped them. We've made sure that they don't die out why are we spending a lot of time with them? Because 
we can't interact with each other in the same way as we can interact between the bobs. Mm-hmm. And so why spend time with them because they're just so different? Oh, you being another Mass Effect fan, what's that quote from Mass Effect about? It's not about how long about it's not how long the fish lives. It's about the time you spend with the fish. <laughs> uh, yes, um, and some of them are with the uh, very model of a Solarian scientist. So you have to really appreciate them. Um, I believe it, it was in reference to uh, Asari to uh, relationships, with, especially with... Um, Shorter-lived species. Yeah, like the Solarians. Yeah. So the Solarians have a much shorter lifespan, and Asari have, like, in terms of, like, a couple of decades, and the Asari are incredibly long-lived species that live for centuries, and it's like, well, why would uh, species that live for centuries ever have a romantic entanglement with a species that lives decades because they're just going to die and you're going to be heartbroken. And it's, you know, it's not the, uh, it's the time that you spend with them that, that, that really matters, not that they're eventually going to die. Right. You can have an absolutely wonderful day, just have perspective on the fact that it is fleeting, but you enjoy the moments regardless of the fact that they're fleeting. Uh, we may eventually need to do a, some equivalent of Mangum Reads with us replaying Mass Effect, because that could be a fun experience in terms of us, how much we enjoyed that. Um, <laughs> that would be a hell, of a, a hell of an investment for an episode. But I think we've handled enough in terms of the first book of Bob. We'll just now need to debate from here whether we want to continue with the series. Yeah. Um, I, th- continue I think with that, it. We, that's an open conti- question. Yeah, it's one of those continue with it. We've already read it, but just whether we want to talk about it some more. Yeah. Um... I think we've covered a lot of the main themes. Um, honestly, you know, we probably could eke out another episode, but I I feel like that if we do that, especially if we have another gap between uh, our recordings again, that I'd have to reread it for the third or fourth time now. Yeah. So, uh, or fourth or fifth time or now. Or listen. So or listen to it again. That that is true. Um, I, I have done that a couple of times, so, but I think moving on might, uh, we always can come back well. in the future. Yeah, that's true. And, and there are two more books in the, the trilogy and I think that they would be fun returns. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you've already read the second one, so that's something that may, we may, uh, ponder doing in the future. Um, but, but I do think that, that moving on would, would be, uh, easier on us and our listening audience. <laughs> Um, As I said, we've already we've already left certain uh, series on pause, so we could return them at a later date. I see no problem with putting Bob, Bob in a similar category, just so we can broaden our horizons for a little bit first. Uh, yeah. Um, so our listeners remember that that we put uh, Brandon Sanderson's Legion on hold, and uh, so we, we've said that we'll return to that and. It's doing that soon might be a, a good thing to do. Hey, if we, if we want to propose that one for our next book, just so we can take a break with a nice little short story, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah. Um, then then why don't we do that? Um, we'll do the second of the uh, Legion I, uh, by Brandon Sanderson. I just had it up. Uh, Is it named Skin Deep, I think? Uh, that might be the third one. I'm losing track. But it might be Skin Deep. Um, anyway, so, so we'll do the, uh, sec, yeah, you, you are correct. Uh, it's skin deep. Mm -hmm. And then the last one I believe is the many lives 
or Lies of the Beholder okay. is the third one. Well, let's, uh, let's do the second for a nice little quick fun read, and uh, we can then chart for what's going to be our next 500-page investment from there. Or, uh, yeah, or maybe take some other suggestions and do something in between, mm-hmm. but maybe a, a full length. Um, and I know that uh, Sarah, who was a guest in our previous episodes mm-hmm. and might join us in the future, had uh, a couple of... Uh, recommendations, some in the sci-fi genre and some outside of it. And so we could sort of slowly move our way into uh, some other things. We have done some just pure fiction as opposed to uh, sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Encompass a little bit more. Mm-hmm. It, it, but... If you annoy me enough, I'm eventually going to make you read Lord of the Rings again. But, well, you know, we'll see how that goes. Spencer, yeah? the day that we do Lord of the Rings, the next thing you're going to read is Bridge to Terabithia. Oh, fuck you. Okay, okay. We, we've set out our mutual threats. We understand where we stand now. <laughs> All right. Well, be, be... This is more mutual sure destruction <laughs> than, than, than a, a good counter policy. Okay, Medeiros, you're driving the asteroids into Earth. Understand that it's ending <laughs> civilization in the process. I appreciate that. All right. Um, BJ, send us out. Where can people listen to our content here in the future? Um, you can get all of our content on mangumtalks.com. Um, and if you have any comments or suggestions or questions that, that you want us to answer on a next episode, click the uh, submit your questions or something along those lines. I believe it's at the top right. Um, and you can find all of our other podcasts as well on mangumtalks.com. There is GOT, Got Questions, with Spencer and Lee. Um and that we're recording well, another one tomorrow don't worry sorry we've been on a hiatus with that one too um yeah there's been a bunch of a hiatus uh real life sometimes gets in the way of us having uh what's essentially a an amusing diversion uh, um, along with the fact that certain of our other shows require noticeably less prep time before we can just do them <laughs> Yes, uh, just drinking during the day doesn't require anywhere near as much prep time as reading a, a book or uh, watching an episode of TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but yeah, GOT got questions. Um, I believe there's a little bit more review and preparation for the um, upcoming final season. Mm-hmm. Um, there is Mangum Hoops with uh, Lee and Levi Baxter. And I'm sure they're reviewing a lot more stuff in the NBA. Um, maybe they'll even touch on our very own Roy commenting on who he thinks the GOAT is. And he came out heavily for Michael Jordan, unsurprisingly, who was one of the players that uh, he helped train. Relatively safe and, pick, I would say. Yeah, relatively safe. Um, and then our last uh, Whiskey on the Weekends. Uh, where we day drink and talk amongst each other, reminisce about old stories where we spent time in college and generally make Spencer uncomfortable. And any new content that uh, we have, well, you can always find on Mangum Talks, and hopefully we'll be expanding this soon. You can also find it on Stitcher, Apple iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and yeah. Keep looking out for for more content. We're gonna. My resolution, if you listen to Whiskey on the Weekend, was to try and provide that on a reasonably updating schedule for you guys. Our only limits are our creativity. But as always, uh, we hope, hope you'll, listen, you'll join in to listen to us for the next uh, book or short story that we're going through, and you'll read it along with us. And uh, yeah, looking forward to it, everybody. Always a pleasure. 
Have a good night, Spencer, and uh, keep on reading, guys.